Hi, everybody, and welcome to the AGA podcast, Small Talk, Big Topics. I'm your host, Matthew Whitson. With me, as always, is Dr. Nina Nandy. Hello, Dr. Nandy. Happy 2022. Happy 22, Matt. I'm so excited to be here. I am excited to be here. So today we have a bit of a bonus podcast. So season two, we officially can say, is launching spring 2022. Make sure you stay tuned. It's going to be a good one. We have a lot of cool topics coming up. Super excited to bring that to the audience. But in the meantime, we have a little bit of a bonus podcast. So what we got for the audience today, Dr. Nandy? So we are so lucky to be talking to Dr. John Inadomi. He is the president of the AGA and also the chair of internal medicine at Utah. So I am excited to talk to him about his leadership skills and really how he developed them over the course of his career and really kind of to see how the AGA played a role in his career development. That is exciting to me as a young academic faculty person. What about you, Dr. Nandy? Who, what are you excited to hear from him? He is just such a renowned faculty, and he's done so many interesting things, including um, being in mechanical engineering at MIT before he went to medical school and uh, became a gastroenterologist. He's just been involved in so many projects through NIH and uh, becoming an editor of gastroenterology. So I'm very excited to see what he has in store for AGA, what are his plans, what, what's going to be different this year under his leadership, and just also learning about how he got to where he is. And as a... Uh, former microbiologist yourself, you're just really excited to talk to someone that really loves the sciences as much as you. I am so excited to talk about the molecular biology of it all. I don't know. As a as a former biomedical ethics major in college, whatever that means, uh, I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm not sure if I'm vibing on the same length as you guys there. So, so we can come from all kinds of varied and different backgrounds to do what we do. That's what's beautiful about gastroenterology. You know. Uh, you know what? Well said. Well said. So let's kick it off. Bonus podcast for the start of 2022. We are excited for everything to come. Please subscribe so that you can uh, see the launch of season two. You ready, Nina? I'm ready. We're so excited. Let's do it. Let's get it. Have a good day, guys. Hi, I'm John Inadomi. I'm the chair of the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Utah. I am also the current president of the American Gastroenterological Association. I'm really pleased to be able to talk to, talking with CS and Nina and Matt, and anything's fair game. I'm happy to answer any questions about my career, my decisions, my goals, my aspirations, and any advice that I can possibly give to any of the young and new gastroenterologists in the audience. Fantastic, John. Thank you so much for being with us. We're so excited to speak to, as Matt refers to, Mr. President of the AGA, <laughs> although you let us call you John. Definitely. So maybe first question off is your transitions. You recently sent a welcome to all the AGA members. It was very nice to read to kind of get an introduction of you. You started as a biomedical engineer, but really your career has morphed. Can you tell us a little bit about your career change? Because nowadays, one third of medical students do not come from a biology background, you know, maybe humanities, maybe engineering or other things. So, you know, I think this is really applicable to our audience. Can you tell us a little bit more about your history and your career trajectory and changes? Sure. I'm happy to do so. I actually, um, my background, undergraduate degree is in biomechanical engineering. And the work I was doing is all on artificial limbs, bionics. So powered, neurologically controlled replacement limbs, knees and, and elbows in particular. 
And it was a great field. I really enjoyed it. I often will say I'm a much better engineer than a doctor. <laughs> so, <laughs> and everything made sense to me. In fact, the only reason I went to med school was because I was working in the orthopedic biomechanics lab at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And the PI of the lab was a PhD. And so you can't do what I do. You got to get an MD. So go off to med school, get an MD. It'll only take four years. Mind you, he said, it would only take four years. And then come back and, you know, we'll, we'll have save a place for you. Then you can do what you're doing right now. And of course, didn't realize that it, orthopedics takes much more time than that. But the bottom <laughs> line is I got to med school and there was a, just a whole new world that opened up for me. And I still like biomechanics, but the breadth and the depth of kind of knowledge and questions you can answer and ask in internal medicine really excited me. But I actually was a... I was actually a, in the uh, orthopedic biomechanics track all the way up to the fourth year of med school. And it wasn't until I actually actually applied that I decided, wow, you know, this is what I want to do is internal medicine. And even within that, I, I wasn't sure exactly what specialty, but it was the people in GI. And as many of you, I think people who are more senior will realize is like sometimes we don't know exactly if it's the content or the people. And for me, it was definitely the people in gastroenterology that really got me into, into the, the field. And so that was, that was the exciting part. You know, I think that was that transition is, is, again, going to med school specifically for one reason and realizing my passion lay elsewhere. I mean, I was going to be a pediatric emergency room doctor. And then my mom just explained to me that I don't look like George Clooney. <laughs> and she was you look better than george clooney ah, ah the power of podcasts we're not sure flash um, so actually john what drew you into gi or what about the people that yeah. drew you towards it yeah that's that that actually is pretty clear to me so i remember, remember this uh, there's this you know the junior clerkship the uh, required medicine clerkship i remember that it was a third year and i did it first and I did it first because I knew I wanted to go into surgery and I wanted to kind of get buffed up and learn all about <laughs> medicine, that kind of stuff. So I'd be prepared for my surgery rotation. Now, my attending for those eight weeks happened to be Marv Schlesinger, who's Marv Schlesinger of Schlesinger and Fortran. And he was, of course, as I was, a, he's the, um, the chief of service at the VA in San, in San Francisco. And I remember actually telling him this, that, you know, I'm not interested in medicine. I want to go into surgery. I'm doing this first because... I want to make all the mistakes in medicine, and that way I look really good in surgery. And I remember him looking at me, just kind of laughing and thinking, oh, boy, you are really clueless. First of all, even if you thought this, why would you tell me this? You know? so, <laughs> oh my but the, um, the thing that was amazing was a couple of things. First of all, it was the people, again, uh, a variety of folks, not just Dr. Schlesinger. But I remember one day, and he knew I wasn't interested in medicine, but one day, we were talking about physical exam findings. And I basically said, and I can't feel this liver. And, and he was just, wait a minute, can't. I cannot feel this liver. And then all the other students could feel the liver, or at least they said they could. I just said, I can't, you know? And the next day, Dr. Schlesinger had gone through, and he all knew, the, knew all the patients in the hospital at the VA. And he, we went around, and of course, this is the VA. So he, he found eight people with enlarged livers. And we went around, and we actually, he taught me how to palpate livers. And it's nuts. I mean, this guy was the chief of service. He's a, a giant in gastroenterology. And he's taken the time to teach a student who has objectively stated he didn't want to go into medicine about how to palpate livers. And I thought, well, that's remarkable. So I always say that Morris Lessinger got me into medicine. Without that, I probably would have gone into surgery. 
And so that that's a great idea of a, of a role model or a mentor who got me there. Did you ever tell him that? I did. You know, in fact, in many ways, um, uh, luckily, I was able to talk to Tamar before I made my, he used my, continued to be a mentor. Okay. And actually uh, was able to counsel me and mentor me on my different moves. And I remember the last time I talked to him, I was at, in um, kind of new Chinatown in San Francisco. And I was contemplating the move to take the job as a division chief at the University of Washington. And he went through the pros and cons of these things. So, yeah. And I, and I did tell him, and even think, I think in my bio that I submitted to gastroenterology, I did tell him that he was the reason I went into medicine. And he, and he knows that. That's very special. It sounds like there's different people who guided you into med- medicine first and then internal medicine. And then what well, about GI? Was yeah. it the liver? <laughs> yeah. So that was um, when I was doing residency. It was John Sella, who was at the San Francisco General Hospital and a well-known clinician, investigator, and educator. And just the excitement that we had and back then, it was a traditional thing. We'd round twice a day. It was like early morning and the evening. And it was a busy service, a county hospital, just crazy cases coming in. And just excitement and the, just the kind of buzz that we would create as we did rounds and as we did the procedures. And it was just a lot of fun. And just the uh, exposing me to the breadth of gastroenterology, as well as the kinds of questions and, and, and ways we could answer those questions through research is what John Solo taught me. I often say that Marv got me into medicine and John got me into gastroenterology. <laughs> you mentioned a lot about, it looks like they're your mentors or your coaches and maybe even sponsors. Can you tell us a little bit more about what a young faculty or fellow should look for someone? Because sometimes we get questions where people are at institutions or you know centers where they don't necessarily cannot identify someone that they really have that great mentorship with, but they're kind of seeking. So are there any advice to someone who's like making transitions or graduating or maybe thinking about changing jobs, but does not have an immediate mentor? Right. Yeah, I can think of a, you know, a couple more people who are would be great mentors or sponsors in my life, Dennis McCarthy, who gave my first job at the University of New Mexico. And He's then, still there um, at the VA. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. again, still a, a giant in the field. And then the one mentor I have to say who I credit with having given me my academic career, that's uh, Dr. Amnon Sonnenberg, at that time also at the University of New Mexico. And I, I guess the thing that I, I know in retrospect, but I don't didn't know going in, is that a true mentor is somebody who actually gives something from themselves to the mentee. And in this case, Amnon could have done the research much faster, much easier, much more efficiently by himself. But he gave me a variety of projects and a field to explore. And again, I, I, I didn't know how to do this stuff. And I may have told people, I started as a, as a clinician, like a full-time clinician. I was uh, nine half days of endoscopy or clinic a week and four months on the GI conflict service a year and two months as a general medicine attending on the ward. So if you counted, it's like 140%. But that was like a... And <laughs> <laughs> Amnon worked with me nights and weekends. And my wife is a, was at that time was a marketing director. So she worked nights and weekends because she would do um, shopping center marketing. So, you know, it's, we had time to kill. But the bottom line is that Amnon just gave a great deal of himself to me and um, showed me the tools, sponsored me, and uh, we can talk in a second, but really everything I do 
I always feel like I have to pay it forward. Everything that Amnon did for me as a mentor, I'm continually trying to strive to try to pay it forward, to do what for, for others what he was able to do for me. And, 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 and people don't quite understand what mentorship is. It really is not a, it's not an equal thing. The mentor really has to give a lot more. And it really is driven by the mentee, but the mentor really has to develop kind of the dreams and the goals of the mentee and to provide that sponsorship, provide those opportunities. I, I specifically remember there was at one time when there was a, a conference and they had asked Amnon to be you know, one of the faculty. And he said that, oh, you know, I can't make it, but I'll tell you that this guy in Adomi, he'll do a good job. Maybe, <laughs> but, but please, please invite him instead of me. And of course they said, oh, we'll do that. And, and you think about that and, uh, you know, those kinds of sponsorship opportunities are really what you look for. And again, creating an area and providing the, me with the tools really were things that I are all, all based on his hard work and his mentorship. And that's what you would look for. And then when you get it, you make sure you make good use of it and you pay it for it. That's, that's the important part. So did you envision yourself at this time going from clinician to division chair to chair of medicine? And how did that journey come about? Yeah, gosh, no, not at all. So um, <laughs> well, the, so my first job, again, it was a full-time clinical. I was a therapeutic endoscopist. I really enjoyed my job. And I still think that was a great period of my career because I, I think as a clinician, you start to understand those important questions you, that you need to ask, ask and answer. And if I didn't have that time, I probably wouldn't have the same ability to understand what those important clinical questions were. Now, I always say, do as I say, not as I did, because I think, you know, if, if anything, you look at my career and it was slow. I'm a late bloomer. I didn't do research. I don't have an MPH. I didn't get a. Well, there were no K awards for clinical research when I started. So if you want to be efficient, don't do what I did. But again, I wouldn't change my path. And my next step was to the University of Michigan. And the interesting thing about that was Again, sponsorship by Amnon. And then um, at some point, you'll ask me what my the best advice I ever got. And, <laughs> um, and the University of Michigan was, was going to offer me a, a job that was more of a, a clinician scholar. Chung Ouyang would have called it the 50-50 job. I called it the 70-70 job, right? I mean, you never, <laughs> you never really get protected time, right? You just have different expectations. But it was a great opportunity. And in an institution that really supported clinical research. And at that time, we had just started coining the term kind of outcomes research. We, did, we didn't call it health services or even implementation science, even though that's kind of what we're doing. But Amnon and I had this discussion. And it, again, I was at, under his guidance for about four years. And the very end of our discussion about kind of the pros and cons, he looked at me and he says, the marginal benefit of you staying is outweighed by the mar- marginal benefit of you leaving. It's like, what? He goes, I'm telling you to, to, I'm telling you to go, take the job. And that's that the most remarkable thing. You know, you, we were very productive. We had a, a good thing. And, and if anything, a, a, the collaborations, he could have augmented his research program by keeping me around. But he realized at some, that point that the opportunity was greater at a different institution. I, I have to say that was not just the best piece of advice, but also the most generous mm-hmm. and most kind of giving advice I've ever had in my life. And I, again, I thank Amnon for that opportunity. Not to jump ahead, but as, as a former division chair and a current chair of medicine, 
how do those conversations go on the flip side when you have someone that may or may not be your mentee, but at least is in your department or your division, and you really want them to stay, but it's slightly better for them to leave? Yeah. How is it being in the other role now? Yeah. So that's an interesting thing. So I guess there's several parts of this. One is, I guess we can talk about at one point, why did I decide to pursue leadership, right? But the yeah. other part is, like, <laughs> I didn't do that. The other part is uh, my role. So I do have mentees, but I actually do specifically tell them, like, I, there's a conflict of interest. A mentor is different from a sponsor, different from a manager. As a division chief or a department chair, I'm a manager for certain people, right? And at that same time, that's maybe a conflict of interest of being their mentor, right? Because a mentor, it's all about you, the mentee, your goals, your aspirations, your career path. As a manager, it is about the organization, right? And so that's a great, a great question, Matt, was what I do as I actually say, well, I'm taking off my department chair hat right now because as a department chair, I'm a manager. I'm looking after the best interests of the department. And now I'm now I have my mentor hat on and I'm looking after your interests. And here's what I would say as your mentor. And here's how it may differ from my response as your department chair. And so you, you identify something very clearly. Sometimes the best mentor is not a division chief or your department chair because of the fact that there is a conflict and you had different roles as a mentor as opposed to a, a manager of a division or a department. So what happens if you get conflicting advice from different mentors of yours? Let's say one mentor say, yes, do this. Another mentor said, no, that's not a good idea. Do you just keep polling people or do you have other you know, ways to guide you? I have an ex- uh, some experience with this. So now you know, the old days was, um, you know, you have one mentor for a mentee. It usually is, you know, you're working in somebody's lab, whether it be a basic or a clinical lab. But now, of course, you have mentor teams. And you'll have um, methods, mentors, perhaps research. You have content mentors for research. Perhaps you have a clinical mentor. You'll have sponsors and other things. And But somebody does have to be a primary mentor, meaning their role and that mentee will trust them in that role to look primarily after the interests of the mentee. Because again, I keep saying that as the mentor-mentor relationship is really all about the mentee. It really has to be. It can't be clouded by organizational goals. It can't be clouded by societal goals, right? It's got to be all about the mentee. And so um, at some point, there has to be a primary mentor who's able to give that best advice and that the mentee trusts to provide that advice from from the perspective, what is best for the mentee. And I really think that's important. The AGA has a a forward program, which is a, a really wonderful experience to try to increase diversity within our workforce and in particular in research. And in the course of this, I actually was uh, the um, Ford men, uh, mentor for one of our really a rising star within gastroenterology, Dr. Fola May at UCLA. And it was interesting because from a research standpoint, she had some outstanding mentors uh, advising her one pathway. And I was externally looking at it saying, but you know, this is the traditional path. This is the, this is the general MO, the modus operandi. How do you get advancement in career? And it ended up being that I actually contacted her site mentors, and and we had a great discussion about what her situation was, and understood, realized that the environment she had and the kind of resources she had were different 
and it really understood that the demo that I was planning really didn't need to apply to her because she really was in a very unique situation. So at that point, I realized, well, you know, I, my advice as a kind of an external mentor who doesn't understand the environment as well should be superseded by those who actually know her environment and know best what's best for her. And and, I, and certainly we, we took their advice and, um, you know, Actually, the funny thing about Fola is that um, irrespective of anybody's mentorship or advice, she's going to flourish because she's so good. But it's yeah. like the, good, the part about the mentorship is the fact that uh, at some point, we, you do get conflicting data and information and advice. The other question you probably, as a follow-up, is what do you do when like mentorship goes wrong, right? Yeah. 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 And so we, we've, I've gone through this and, and another Another resource that AJ has is our um, Academic Skills Workshop. And I've given a talk about mentorship. And I remember the first couple of times, just give the standard talk, whatever it is. And then people would always ask, well, what happens when it goes bad? And I think, hmm, not sure how to say that. You know, and then, but now it's, you know, and I understand now it's, it has to be part of the, or part of the discussion because it happens so quickly, right? So I think I'm going to go back to the fact that you have mentor teams and the fact that you need advocates for you, you know, across the team. And by having more than one voice in this, you can recognize when somebody like a mentor is not not acting uh, in the best interest of the mentee, either because there's a conflict or because they perhaps don't understand the situation as well. The way I say it now is that the other mentees with, excuse me, mentors within the team should be able to help that mentee decide if, if it's a position where, gosh, one of the mentors is not working out or mm-hmm. is a part of the team that's dysfunctional. Um, and it, it's a little bit, again, better and a good reason to have a team as opposed to one, as opposed to one mentor. Sometimes it actually requires changing the mentor or the team or even ins- institutions. And that's where that external advice becomes really important because, you know, there's very few people at an institution who suggest, oh, yeah, you know, your best bet is to leave, you know, because <laughs> especially if somebody's very productive. But there's a variety of reasons why these relationships don't work out. It may not be scientific. It may not be even academic. It, sometimes they're just chemistry because these relationships are, are very personal and they take time. And, and if you don't have that kind of commitment or that relationship, that may be why these, this uh, mentor-mentee relationship doesn't work out. Have you, um, and maybe this doesn't apply now as a chair, but have you had to break up with a mentee like as a mentor, have you had to say, look, this doesn't seem to be working. I don't seem to be the person for you. And how did you have that conversation? Yeah, so um, I'm pretty picky about those kinds of things. And in general, I'm picky, meaning that I like to have somebody who has a long-term commitment. And that's mainly because my goals of, of mentorship is to really develop people's careers, not expose them to gastroenterology or expose them to research. I want somebody who I'm going to be able to foster their career and show them development and help them really develop an independent, most of the time it's an independent research career, okay. if that's what I'm looking into. And so the times that it doesn't work, if somebody doesn't have that same commitment and, you know, generally I, the, the focus, my focus is again, looking at what's in the best interest, those goals and dreams that mentee, not my goals and dreams, what, what, what they have. But if they don't have that same kind of long-term plan, I think that's what the issue is. If they're not really committed to that path that I know best that to make them successful, that's where I have to say, look, you know, if you don't want to have that commitment, if you don't feel like you have this 
it's nothing wrong, meaning that I understand that life has choices and your priorities may change. And certainly as you've been talking about that, you know, we, we talk about not just work-life balance, but also work-work balance, you know, with the <laughs> clinical, the education, yeah. the research balance, right? And sometimes those things change. Um, and, and understanding that those things change or the priorities change over time, over a career, and it's not static. We have to understand yeah, those okay. are dynamic. And sometimes those changes require um, a different career path and perhaps, you know, uh, for my case, understanding when I'm no longer effective as a mentor. So actually, let's let's speaking of changes and kind of changing career paths, you've went from, if I got this right, and please correct me, obviously, <laughs> you've went from clinician to a fellowship director at one point in, in your career to clinical chiefs, chief of a division, chair of medicine. And each of those, I assume, was a big jump in different responsibilities. So how did you choose what opportunities were right for you? And are there opportunities that you chose were not right for you? And how did you recognize that? Most people are not going to believe it, but I, I hadn't started my career thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to be division chief and department chair. I, I really <laughs> wasn't, right? I, people I could say, oh, no, he's just saying that. No, it really wasn't. I, I started, I really enjoyed taking care of patients. And then when I started interest in um, investigation and felt like I had a chance at this, and I started doing more of that. And then again, at, at, at Michigan, I was had my first federal grant. It was a VA mayor review. At the same time, I also got um, exposure to education. I was a program director for the GI fellowship program at Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also <laughs> the acting section chief at the VA for five years. <laughs> so I never got the permanent job. It's funny, I left, I'm still acting. Um, <laughs> yeah. When I bet, moved back to UCSF because it was a position as a physician scientist, really, really focused on um, not just investigation, but developing a, mm-hmm. a, a, a um, clinical research program uh, for uh, San Francisco General Hospital. I really enjoyed that. But even, even when I was a research director, director, we called it the Center of Hope, Center of um, Health Outcomes Policy and Economics for the San Francisco and the San Francisco Community Network. I was also the clinical chief for that for that network as well. So I always had that dual role. And at some point, I realized that that I really felt like I could offer something in division leadership that I wasn't doing currently. And this is at UCSF, and it felt like that was a time where I felt like I could, I could make that transition as a division chief, or they call it a division head at University of Washington. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the point where you where you realize that the success of the people who you're charged with, meaning your faculty, their success is more important than your own personal success. You need that transition. I, unfortunately, it doesn't happen all the time. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize they either have that or have not made that transition. If you take a leadership role as a division head or a division chief or a department chair, and you don't have that kind of mindset where the success of others is greater than your own success, or the success of others actually is your success, if you don't have that mindset, you're just going to resent the job because you're going to walk and say, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, all day, all day long, I just, I just stuff for other people. You know, I don't have time for myself. <laughs> but you have to realize that, again, that whole mindset changes. And, mm-hmm. and that's the point where you realize, oh, yeah, I'm actually ready for that type of leadership. And then the choice of places is really important. And at some point you may ask, well, how do you know the right, the right opportunity? Yeah. Every institution is different and the culture is different. 
And what you have to understand as a faculty candidate or a leadership candidate, you got to know your own values. What makes you tick? And you got to uh, you have to understand your own vision, right? And it really is the whole culture. People make mistakes because something looks great on paper, but the culture isn't right. You going into that position is going to be wrong, or you recruiting as, as a leader, recruiting somebody who checks all the boxes. If they don't fit that culture, if they don't fit your values, that's disaster. Every mistake I've made, and I made a bunch, right? Every mistake I make as a leader or in my opportunities has been because, not because of the scientific portions or the academic, it's always been a issue with culture and not having that right fit. And culture may be a bad word because then it's, but what we're really talking about is values. What are those yeah. values of an organization? And those are very clear if you really look. Every organization is a set of values by which they prioritize opportunities, how they do business, and it's different. And you just have to understand what, look deep in yourselves and see what are those, what are my values? What is my culture? What is my vision? And does that match up with the institution where I'm going to? It's Again, even at my point, you think, gosh, a department chair, they should, you know, you could do these things. It is my job, I must say, as a department chair to do two things. One is to articulate the vision for the department. Mm -hmm. And number two is to, is to establish the culture. So I think at my, at my position, I do have the ability to establish that culture. It's difficult for anybody at a different level of leadership or, or as a faculty to establish that culture because it comes from the top, meaning it comes from the chair. And I understand those are the two most important parts of my job is to articulate the vision and to establish the culture. But again, when you're looking at jobs and things, make sure that those things are right. Make sure that your vision is aligned. And again, make sure that you fit and you are well aligned with that culture. Otherwise it's disaster. What are some key features and when we're, let's say someone who's applying for a job or transitioning, that they can see what the vision or the culture replaces? Obviously, there's a mission statement, there's a website, there's talking to people, or some people say, follow the money, you know, to see where funding goes, who gets promoted. Any tips and advice from, from you? How to identify well, a culture? You know, so this is interesting. So I've been my job for, the, for a year now, and it's interesting because I say articulate the vision, I don't necessarily need to create that vision because I think the vision is something the faculty have. You go to an institution because you embrace the vision that they that they aspire. It's my job to articulate that. And my hope is that within a short period of time, everyone in my faculty will be able to articulate the same vision. Everyone in my faculty will be able to say, here is our culture, right? If I don't do that, I'm not doing a very good job as a leader, as a department chair. As a faculty candidate, you should be able to readily identify what is a vision. And if you walk around and nobody's like, hmm, I don't know what the vision is, that's a problem. And if you can't figure out, is there one culture? If you don't know what the culture is, you can't get a sense of that. If people can't can state that, then that's another problem, right? I was um, talking to somebody who was at MD Anderson, and the, one of the common things is that you can ask, one of the environmental service workers, the housekeeper, what is your job? And they'll say, making cancer history, you know, which is that double entendre, which is limiting cancer and also understanding that you're making major discoveries. 
but you can also ask them as well, how are you doing this? You're, uh, you know, cleaning things. Well, you know, I, I'm cleaning this because uh, you need a, a very clean environment to be able to provide optimal care and quality. Um, I'm an integral part of that overall mission. And so if you got to the point where everybody in the organization can articulate that same vision and understand what, how they, what part they play, that's an organization that, that, that you, it's worth looking at. And again, as long as you are able to ascribe to that vision, and as long as your values are aligned with that culture, then it's a good place to go. That's actually excellent advice. We should just ask <laughs> environmental I, services I, everywhere. I, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, I haven't taken my own advice. I developed these ideas because of the mistakes I made. You know, that's the thing. So that so, actually, would you be willing to, is there a mistake that you could share without naming names or something like that? that yeah, well, it's funny because I think the people involved would actually know that mistakes, these things are, are not major, just the fact that we understand that um, it was it was not the best move. One of the things I had done is somebody on fit a job description to a T on paper, had all the right credentials, was exactly fulfilling the needs we wanted. And what I didn't quite listen to was expectations. And that's probably my next thing. And it had all to do with, again, with that vision and culture. And they came from a institution, and it's always the same thing. They say, if you've seen one academic institution, you've seen one academic institution. But, you know, there are characteristics that can be, can be perhaps a, a stated that fit certain categories. But the bottom line is that there was some inkling during kind of the vetting process that the institution from which they were coming was different from our institution and should have picked up on that. In other words, the culture was different, right? Expectations were different. And then on more questioning and things like that, it's like it did, there was some inkling that, wow, there was maybe uh, the way we do things is not the way that, that they do things there. But I thought, oh, they'll change. You know, we, we have a better way. We're just better. They'll, they'll figure it out. And of course, you know, people oftentimes are set in their ways. And it is difficult to change expectations. And again, you probably don't change your values very much. And what I failed to do is understand that we had just different expectations for that same, the same role. And it was interesting, without going into a lot of details, even though that the job description, and if you looked at it on paper, that what we needed was that specialist in that particular niche. We needed somebody at that level of career. We had patient demand, we had teaching demands, we even had research demands and that everything made sense. But the lack of fit with regards to values and not making clear those expectations was a mistake on my part. And it ended up being that, you know, amicably we parted after two years, but, mm-hmm. you know, it was amazing we stuck it out those two years because it kind of, kind of knew right away. It was like, oh, this isn't going to work. But anyway, it was, it was interesting, and, and I have to say that. I guess the other part is that the caveat to that is that you may actually fit everything going in, the expectations, but I, I found over time that people change, right? Yeah. <laughs> Even me, right? People's yeah. expectations and goals, and if you look at me, it's like, oh, my gosh. He's, but So the other part is communication, and it is a new, for new faculty or whatever, certainly go into a role, understand the expectations, understand the culture, understand the vision. But as you go in, realize that you may change over time. Your goals may change, but you better articulate that to your boss because they're going to value or gauge you. You have the metrics in their mind, whether it's explicit or implicit, based on what they you came in on. 
And I've had experiences where my faculty member would say, well, you know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And I, well, that wasn't what we planned on doing five years ago. <laughs> But, you know, they say, well, I've changed. Didn't you know that? It's like, we didn't talk about that. <laughs> and it may be perfectly fine. But again, that communication of those changes has to occur. And I find that that doesn't. And so my advice to, again, junior faculty or people looking, actually not even, not even junior, even senior faculty, is that not only look at the vision and the values and the culture when you come in, but as you change, make sure that you communicate that, articulate that, to your chief or your chair. So they remain aligned. Now, it may be that they don't have room for you in that particular role or that they don't have that same expertise. Mm -hmm. It's good to know. But if they do, hopefully they will have a room for you in that role in that position. And they'll just have to reset what their metrics for your success are. But you don't want to go in two, three, four years later and be on a track you think is to success and your boss has a different mindset because of fact mm -hmm. they haven't kept up with your changes. As your career has progressed and now that you are serving as president of AGA, can you just discuss a little maybe about how the AGA and how societies have played a role in your career development and what you hope people get out of the AGA as maybe their home, their societal home? Yeah, that's a that's a great, great question, Matt. And I hope I can answer that fully because I, I hope that people can understand the opportunities and the excitement mm -hmm. and, and the amount of joy I get at working as a, as a volunteer, it's a volunteer organization, volunteering for the AGA. I think it really does add, add a dimension to my career that you can't get. You have a, a network of people outside of your institution. And of course me, I've had five institutions. So my network was pretty big, but heck, you know, with the AGA, it's a huge network. And I love just working with people and talking with people and getting this exposure to this thing. It's, it's just a way to connect to people you never would otherwise be able to connect with. The other part is just the potential, especially as you volunteer, to actually shape the future, right? I mean, it really actually, it's, it's pretty daunting, but at the same time, very exciting that maybe you can change the future of what is important in research. I'm a editor of the of Associate for Gastronology. In many ways, not only do we evaluate research, but in many ways, we're telling people, this is hot. This is what you go into. This is the kind of stuff that we want to see. Mm -hmm. In many ways, we think we do actually influence what, what, what areas are of, of great interest and try to highlight those areas we think that will advance the field. So I think that's a fun part of this. And then the other part, I think, is, is you know, networking with a great group of people on the governing board. They're just really, really smart people that I learned from. And, I, and it's, it's kind of a little bit you feel a little guilty. I mean, you say like, oh yeah, you're supposed to be contributing so much to society, but I kind of feel like I'm getting more out of society than, <laughs> than I'm putting in. And so I, I really do enjoy those interactions. Really smart people that volunteer for the organization. In addition to the staff who are really, I mean, they're really professional and really the glue that holds mm -hmm. us together. But the variety of, of, of things that we're, we're doing, and of course, we've gotten away from the idea of a president having like a one-year agenda because you can't get substantial stuff mm -hmm. done in a year. We realize it takes multiple, multiple years for things to happen. And, you know, at some point we, 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 I've, I've talked about my vision that we could have a truly a national portal to cancer screening program that doesn't depend on work or insurance for that matter. It would be organized. It could provide choice. It could provide navigation and encourage people to get screened and follow up at a national registry so we know where people are and their surveillance. So that would be great. And that would be something that's something that actually the, the three uh, leaders in succession, not just me, but 
John Carruthers and Barbara Jung, all being colon cancer people, we all have ascribed to this thing. So we have a long, long vision for us, and we hope to be able to achieve that during our tenure. Fantastic. That's great. One thing, I, if I can switch gears a little bit, is kind of hard advice on one of the things you mentioned, uh, going back a little bit, first time that really intrigued me was you work 140%, which is not mathematically correct, as we know, but clearly, um, you know, that's what the work you do. So it kind of talks about time management and prioritization. Um, I'm sure a lot of us feel a pull in different directions, whether in our personal life, professional life, or different kinds of professional roles. Can you talk a little bit more about that or any advice that you've garnered from being years in practice and in the profession? Sure. I have a couple of angles of that of that answer. One would be, um, you know, people say you can't do everything. I say you can do everything, you just can't do it at one time. For my example is, you know, I, I was a clinician at one point. I was an educator at one point. I was much more of a investigator at one point. Now I'm a administrator leader. I've done all these things. You just can't do everything at once, right? And so you do have to prioritize a bit about what you want to do at one point at each point in time. If people make fun of my career, I've been you know five places, and if you look at it, it's like that guy doesn't know what he wants to do. I argue that I've always wanted, knew exactly what I wanted to do. It just changed every five years. <laughs> yeah. So that's the good part about academics is you can have yeah. multiple careers doing many different things and yet still stay in that field. And I've really enjoyed that. I guess the other part about time management is this, is that, again, it's the prioritization. So it, it's, it's um, I guess I'm going to talk about burnout. And I'm not sure burnout is specifically about time, right? And I always talk about, and I'm going to go off on a, on a limb here, you know, sometimes burnout isn't always about work-life balance. Burnout is a lot about the fact that at work, if you don't feel you have autonomy, and you don't feel you have ownership. And if you don't have ownership, you don't have autonomy, and you don't have that sense of purpose, those are the things that really burn you out, irrespective of the amount of time you have. I'll give you an example. is because the least amount of work I did was a period of time between, what was it, between a residency and fellowship. I worked as an emergency room doctor, and it was like full-time ER. But at that time, you know, I, I basically worked, as you know, like three days a week, maybe four days a week. Mm-hmm. I spent the rest of the time learning how to play golf at that point. <laughs> yeah, I paid off a lot of debt. I got married. Uh, I went to Europe. Uh, the only thing I didn't do on my list, I was supposed to learn Japanese. And that's the only thing I didn't do that one year. But everything else I did. But I have to say, with regards to like burnout, that's the only time I was burned out. Mm. And that's because, for me at least, ER work did not give me purpose. And it had no autonomy. <laughs> and, you know, again... ER is just like, thank God there's people who are like that, but you just take what's coming in and you deal with it. But again, the lack of follow-up and just the shift was done and you kind of left. A lot of people like that. For me, it's like, that was very unfulfilling. It's like, well, what happened? You know, and they, did I make the right decision? Did I admit the person? Did I, you know, th- those things just drove me nuts. And so I'm putting this out there because I think people have to understand time management, work-life balance, burnout, and they're different. They're different ideas. They're not synonymous. And I give this point because that was a period of time when I had the best work-life balance, but the most amount of burnout because of the fact that I had no purpose, no autonomy, no ownership. And again, that was me. And, and luckily that told me, well, heck, it's a good thing I'm not an ER doc 
And thank God I'm a gastroenterologist, <laughs> right? But I give that I give that point to you in, in, in conjunction with the fact that you have to prioritize what you want to do in life, and you can do different things at different stages. And again, those are the, my perspectives about time. Maybe it's not exactly time management, but how to get you what you want out of your career. How's that? Fair enough. I think that's very insightful. You kind of gave us more answers than we asked for. So this is really great. I think we're coming up on the hour. And Matt has several questions that we pulled from the audience that will do just rapid fire. So Matt, fire away. All right. So John, I'll say some of these questions may be medical related. Some of them are a little bit off the wall. Uh, we've, we've culled out some of the ones that were a little too crazy for you. So let's start with this. What is the best thing about Utah? Oh my gosh. It's the outdoor stuff. I've been skiing more than I've skied in 20 years. And then um, I also uh, was on a Peloton during COVID. And after about 300 rides, I said, maybe I should get a bike. So I finally <laughs> got a bike and now I'm doing road biking like crazy. And I got these crazy hills here. And of course, we're a mile up. So I'm, I think I get in pretty good shape, but boy, the skiing and the biking is wonderful. And you're doing okay without like Cody Rigsby yelling in your ear that you're doing wonderful? I still get on the bike and either Cody or Alex will yell in my ear just to keep me motivated. Yeah. Alex yelling in my ear is pretty motivating as well. <laughs> right. This this won't become an advertisement for people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next question. So that, that actually might have answered this other question. What do you do to stress relief outside of work? I love doing things like, like Peloton's a big thing in my life. Now I'm in the summer, I, I like biking. In the winter, I, I ski. The other thing I add in there is, is golf. It's not like exercise, but boy, it's, um, it's, it's quite social. And I, I enjoy a good round of golf. Uh, I'll ask a personal follow-up. What's your handicap? Oh, my gosh. I don't carry one. Because <laughs> I, I, it's a funny thing. I, I don't actually play golf enough. To, I enjoy it, but I probably only play maybe once or twice a month. But the last time I had a handicap, it was 15, which is quite bad. But, you know, that's where I am. I do feel like that's pretty solid. <laughs> it, it basically shows someone who aspires but who has not achieved. I would reframe it that there's still potential. <laughs> <laughs> a lot, yeah. <laughs> okay, so turning it back a little bit, what is your favorite memory from your GI fellowship? Oh, my gosh. You know, this sticks in my mind. This may be too much, but it sticks in my mind. So I got my tooth knocked out. <laughs> during fellowship because we were we were playing basketball and you think about me it's like basketball why the heck would a guy five six play well during fellowship at UCSF there was a, a league and there was actually the real league and then there was a six foot and under league and the seven fellows we had in our class actually were all six foot and under so we've had a league so for all three years we were religious about playing together on this That's league fantastic and we weren't very good, but we, you know, we figured out how to play together after a while. But one of the times is we were playing a team and they literally knocked up my tooth. And the reasons this is uh, not just a story about fellowship, but I had a, had a false tooth that they had to put in there as I eventually got a dental implant. That's actually that front left incisor. I went to DDW and I remember it was uh, during my fellowship. And for some reason I had some oral session or actually an oral presentation to make. And this tooth actually popped up when I was eating a po' boy. You know what a po' boy is? Like uh, I'm familiar. Thing. Were you in New Orleans at this time? I was in New, I was in New Orleans. I was in New Orleans. That's Sorry. where DDW was. I was had a po' boy. And I was eating and my tooth came out. And I had this oral presentation. And then my co-fellow said, oh my gosh, you just lost like 30 IQ points. You look like a moron. <laughs> and so the, that night, they're sitting there and we're in there. We're trying to super glue my tooth back in just so I can function. 
And they, they somehow shoved it back in there. And there's like, you know, all of us were in there and, they, and shoving it and they glued it, literally glued it in place. I couldn't eat or drink because our fear got through the oral presentation. And then, and then we actually had to see a dentist in, in New Orleans who was able to take me, which is intrigued. It's like, how did you guys super glue that tooth in? You know, so he, he was so intrigued that he took my case of it. Anyway, that's my most memorable thought I remember about uh, that uh, fellowship. I feel like that also might be the best use of your engineering degree uh, as well. <laughs> Actually, one of the other questions we got was, what was your most embarrassing memory of fellowship? But I feel like that might be it as well. That, that's the same point. I think that, again, losing that tooth, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you're going to have this oral presentation and you really do lose about 30 IQ points by, <laughs> by losing that first tooth, but incisor, yeah. Uh, we'll we'll all wait for a throw it back Thursday photo of you without the tooth. <laughs> I, I really hope someone has a photo documentation of that. Yeah. Okay. I thought this was an interesting question. What is one of the coolest studies that you've seen that you had nothing to do with, but you just thought, oh man, that's such a cool way they did this. I wish I thought of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's always, uh, oftentimes it's when I'm a associate editor for GI, you'll see this gastro. But truthfully, gosh, the coolest study, oh, I could, I know exactly what it is. So Jesper Lagergren from the Karolinska in, in Stockholm had a, a paper is about the, the, uh, the risk that symptomatic reflux disease is a risk factor for esophageal adenocarcinoma. It was published in the New England Journal in the um, late 90s. But the, uh, it, was a, it was a case control study. So the cases were esophageal adenocarcinoma. The exposure was a survey about people, prospective survey, but ask them, you know, what kind of symptoms, the, the duration, severity, and the frequency of, of reflux symptoms like heartburn. And, you know, it's all full of recall bias if you do that, because mm -hmm. people who have had cancer always think, oh, must have been me. Most likely they would have reported more reflux. So that's a huge source of bias, recall bias in these things. So the way they got around it is that they actually didn't really tell the people what the hypothesis was. So they took cases with esophageal adenocarcinoma, and they had the normal controls, which are people without any kind of GI disease. Mm -hmm. And they had a second control group of people who had esophageal squamous carcinoma, which is not, you know, not associated mm -hmm. with reflux. But if there was recall bias, these people would have said, oh yeah, I had that, I had heartburn too. And you, so it was a brilliant way of doing this. And they found that reflux symptoms were associated with like a greater than sevenfold higher risk of esophageal adenocarcinoma among people who didn't have reflux symptoms. And they got they actually had a dose effect where they frequency, duration, and severity even increased that, that odds ratio even greater, showing causality because of that, the dose effect. But, that, but getting rid of that recall bias by having that really intriguing second control group of people who, if they just kind of did that recall bias, then they would have had positive response. But having that and having a, something that with a biological plausibility wasn't there in that control, that was just brilliant. And so I feel like... Um, in fact, I thought it was so brilliant. And a number of years later, when I, I always thought, oh, I'm going to do a paper with that guy. And so it's a funny thing. We, have, we actually have had a, we, we did publish a paper together uh, among other people. And, and it was great to have him on the team because he's just brilliant. And I just keep remembering what a, what a fantastic study design to get rid of a bias that otherwise would be invalidate the results. That's awesome. That's an awesome example. All right, two more questions for you. So you have traveled a bunch. You've been at Michigan. You have been at University of Washington. You are at Utah. What team are you staying with here? Oh, gosh, that, that's an easy one. It's the Seahawks. I'm a okay. huge Hawks fan. You know, I was there in Seattle when they won their Super Bowl. 
demolishing the Denver Broncos in 2014. And of course, I was there the following year when they, as you recall, mm-hmm. they were poised to win their second mm-hmm. Super Bowl before they had an interception on that one yard line. Oh, I, I, I still can't get over it. And that was in 2015. They should have just had Marshawn Lynch run the ball two or three more times. That would have been best. I know. Carol's face after that was pretty, was pretty <laughs> precious as well. And then actually, this is the question we like to end all of our interviews with, uh, which is, what's the best advice you got along the way and that you pass forward to your mentees and and members of your team? Well, again, I think the best advice I got was from my, my mentor, Anand Sonnenberg. And that, again, was at the point where when he really finally assessed for me, not for him, but for me, at what point and was it worth it to to take a new opportunity? He told me to take that opportunity. That was the best advice I got. And I really do treasure that that advice. And it really did tremendously help my career in terms of advancing my research objectives and everything else. So again, really have to thank Amnon for that. And I guess um, when you talk about advice for new people, and especially about advice about taking jobs, I'm not sure if I was given this advice or I just figured this out, but I would I would say never move to leave. You always want to move to a better opportunity. There's so many people who move because of oh, what they have is not what they want. That's the wrong time to move. That's the wrong reason to move. You always got to move to a better opportunity. And I think that kind of along the same lines is like, how do you know that's a better opportunity? I you know, know your passion. What are your, what are your values? What is your vision? What is, what do you want to do? If you don't have that, it's difficult to know where those opportunities arise and an opportunity may come up and you won't recognize it because you don't have that you don't understand where your passion is. You don't understand your vision. So you got to understand what makes you tick. What is your passion, right? And so I think those are the those are the big things. And probably again, the last part is in terms of your values. You know, I, when I go through, I I talk about leadership, and certainly within um, my method of leadership is really based on trust. I always tell people. In fact, I told my faculty here, it's like I know I can't lead you because I right now you don't trust me. And the reason you don't trust me because you don't know me. All I can do right now is kind of tell you what to do, which is not leadership, it's commanding. You can only do a little bit. You can only command people so far. True leaders are people who people want to follow, not just because they command it, but because they really want to follow them. And the only way they're going to follow them is if they trust them. And trust is based, for me, on honesty and fairness, consistency and transparency. If I can demonstrate these things, then people will trust me. If I can demonstrate trust, people will follow me, and then I can be an effective leader. So. That would be my advice. Find leaders, find people you can trust and become a leader. Become somebody who people can trust based on your honesty, fairness, consistent transparency. And then if you marry that with your values and you marry that with your vision, then you've got it made. You know, then, then you, irrespective of what you do, you, you've got your career. So I guess that's, that's my final advice. Fantastic. Uh, if anyone wants to follow up with you, uh, are you on Twitter and what's your handle if so? I am. You know, um, I'm kind of a newbie at this, but in this role, it's my ha- handle is Enadomi J. So I N A D O M I J. Kind of not particularly uh, creative, but easy to remember. And so, yeah, please happy to have you follow me or alert me to what I should follow. I'm always into that as well. So happy to promote others as well, and looking forward to any feedback and further conversations. John, this was super fun. Thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, Matt, thanks so much. And again, um, thanks to Nina and CJ. It's been a really a nice conversation and uh, hope we can do it again. Thank you for listening to the AGA podcast. 
To reach us, please email us at agapodcast at gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJWitsonMD, at NinaNandyMD, and at CSCMD. Podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good one.